0: Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys, and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe, and of course, leave a review. Hello, and welcome back to my podcast, One for the Road. I've had a short break, and Happy New Year to you. I'm sure you've missed me. Yeah. Anyway, if you're doing Dry January, don't forget I've got a couple of offers available. Uh, The link is on my bio just to help you through Dry January. And it's a brilliant opportunity for you to take a break with that support and see how you feel by the end of it. I have an incredible guest on today. It's Susanna at Sue Sober. She's got an amazing story. She was diagnosed with complex PTSD in 2021 after facing a number of life-changing situations throughout her life, including losing her mum in her early 20s, followed shortly by her involvement in the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. Her drinking picked up in her early 30s and she admits struggling to come to terms with these traumatic events. But now she's coming up to two years sober and is an inspirational, much-loved member of the Sober community. So I'm so glad she's kicking off the new year with this incredible story. I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. And thanks again for your support. Good morning, Susanna. Welcome to my podcast, One for The Road. How are you today? Oh,
1: I'm good, Dave. Thank
0: you. How are you? I'm fine. We met up a few weeks ago. We did a lovely walk in the countryside, didn't we? And we had we a really do. yeah, we had a really interesting conversation, and when I left there, I thought, do you know what? I need to ask you to be a guest on my podcast, and here you are. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: No, thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Good, good. So this is where it all begins. You uh, grew up in Kent near Tunbridge Wells. Let's go from there.
1: Yeah. So um, I grew up in a little village um, outside Tunbridge Wells called Brunchley. Um, I'm the youngest of three girls. I've got two big sisters. And there's quite a large age gap. So they are nine and 11 years older than me. Um, and I was really privileged. I had a really blessed um, upbringing with two wonderful parents. My father worked very hard in the city. Um, you know, we had a lovely house um beautiful garden my mum was a garden designer so we had a beautiful garden and yeah we were really 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 lucky and very blessed growing up i was sent away to boarding school when i was seven um there was a few issues around my well i was dyslexic but they didn't know that at the time um and the school that i was in was like just our sort of local school and they didn't think it was necessarily right for me and so they moved me further away to Broadstairs, which was an hour away. Um, but I did have to start boarding and I was terribly homesick, really, really homesick. I found it very difficult to be away from home, be away from my mum in particular. I found that very hard. And I don't think my mum found it very easy either. And um, yeah, I I was also, because my birthday were in September, I was also... I wasn't in the right year group so I was put in a year ahead of myself so I was with people sometimes over a year older than me and that had a bit of a knock-on effect to my confidence really throughout my throughout my whole life actually and I only really realized that a few years ago um, so I was competing with people and comparing myself to other children who you know were older than me and of course and plus to dyslexia I wasn't really able to keep up so that happened. I was terribly homesick. So they did move me at eleven um, to another school, another boarding school, but it was closer to home. And that was when I was eleven. And I, I did really enjoy that actually. And I met some really great friends. But I started. I was quite naughty at that school. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I found my confidence. Um, I got some good friends. Um, but I did sort of start playing up a bit nothing nothing too bad i didn't get into a lot of trouble but i was a bit cheeky and just yeah i can see a lot of it actually in one of my children now just a little bit you know pushing the boundaries i guess you could say that um drinking started being kind of a think started featuring for sort of that group of friends, probably around 13 or 14, of which I didn't actually get involved. I always tried to sort of stay away from it. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why. My my parents weren't big drinkers. They'd have these sort of quite glamorous dinner parties, and I would sit on the top of the stairs, and I could hear all the sort of the laughter and the clinking of glasses and everything downstairs, and it just seemed really sort of glamorous to me. Um, I, I, and I was always a bit afraid of people getting drunk, even from an early, early age. I remember that, and I don't know if it was that I saw something on TV or what happened, but there was definitely something at the back of my mind, just not wanting, you know, especially my parents to get to get drunk or get tipsy. And um, yeah, so. Some of my friends at 13, 14 started drinking. They'd smuggle, we were obviously at a boarding school, they'd smuggle vodka, those little small bottles of vodka into the school. And yeah, and I just remember for me, I managed to say no, and I didn't really want to get involved in that until I was probably maybe 15. And bearing in mind, I was then hanging out with people who were a year older than me. So they were all 16 and I was still 15. And we'd start going to the pubs at like x at weekends, which are the weekends when you're allowed out home. Or to London, we'd go to London and stay with friends. Um, and I think because my parents, I was so much younger than my two older sisters, they definitely gave me a lot of free reign. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of sort of control or parenting going on. Um, they were very, they were always bare, bare for me. My mum was amazing, um, amazing woman, an amazing mum. But I don't think there was a huge amount of parenting. She didn't really know what I was getting up to. I remember actually there was one particular time, it was just after my GCSE. So I was 15 and we were in Portugal and I went on holiday with my parents. And we were staying in this place called Valzalobo and there were lots of children my age and it was really fun. But I was allowed out till about four in the morning, age 15. And to me, like now with my own children, well, I just think what, what was, what was happening? And I'd roll home after drinking, I don't know what I was drinking, cider or bog rebels or something like that. And I don't ever remember being sick or anything, but I was very good at tennis and I was in a tennis camp, which is one of the reasons why we're in Portugal. And, um, I'd have these tennis lessons starting at eight and I'd come in at four in the morning after we did these. We'd just be in these bars with all these Portuguese people, all these locals, and just loads of teenagers. And it was, it was bizarre actually, and really dangerous. Like I put myself in quite a few dangerous like situations with local people, um, age 15. And I definitely wasn't mature enough to sort of be dealing with that. But yeah, there was, didn't seem to be much parenting going on, and I wasn't ever told off for it. So it just sort of, you know materialise. it just sort of happened um and then i moved schools again after my GCSEs, and i moved to a mixed school a mixed boarding school um up in buckinghamshire so still boarding and that's when i definitely did start um drinking at school um we had this thing that it was it was called skanking and we basically break out of the house that we slept in At three in the morning and go and drink vodka in the ground. And also, if it was someone's birthday, we'd wake up at five in the morning and go and drink before breakfast. And I don't really think about that very often, but I mean, even that initially, I don't know if that's a normal, you know, teenage thing to do, but you know, that I'd be pretty disappointed if my children were doing that now, to be honest, and really worried. Um, so that sort of happened and. I think for me, my, my drinking didn't really start to escalate until my thirties because of some, you know, big traumatic events that happened to me in my early twenties. Um, well, once I left that school after my A levels, I went travelling for a year. Um, and I went to Australia, but I was, I think I was social drinking then, you know, I was just, there weren't any sort of spectacular, awful, drunken stories or anything. Um and I definitely wasn't aware of any issues. I was just doing what everyone else was doing. But I did always suffer from really bad hangovers from an early age and my tolerance wasn't great. So I didn't need to drink a lot for it to really impact me physically. And I would quite often get head spins and then be sick. And I there was no second wind. Like if that happened I that was it. I was out um and then feel pretty shocking the next day as well and that happened you know pretty much from my 20s um the the first big life altering moment i kind of call it a grenade moment you know when something goes off in your life and you know nothing's going to be the same again and you're going along the path and suddenly you're veered to a in a different direction and that for me was the 14th of October 2003 when my mum really suddenly died um as I said before like I was really really close to her and we spoke a lot I was living in London then and um yeah we spoke all the time and I it was really sudden she was looking after my sister's children my sister was away on holiday for a week and she was looking after her three young children in london uh, where my sister lived and i lived in a flat in london as well and she was complaining about a sort of headache and she was feeling quite tired and she called me and i was out for dinner and I was with a friend of mine, and she called me, and she said, "I really don't feel well and I was in Fulham, and she was in Wandsworth, so I was only about a fifteen twenty minute drive and i I didn't go I didn't go see her and that that really I struggled with that Dave, for a long time because the guilt I felt around that that I didn't go um was immense for me. She did say, "'Don't come, I'm fine, but I should have you know now." knowing what obviously what i know now i would have gone there was an au pair in the house um but i for some reason i don't i think she was upstairs and she didn't know what was happening but my mum called 111 and we've got the transcript of what happened because we wanted to know exactly what was happening because they didn't send an ambulance and they should have sent an ambulance so there was a lot of there was a lot of, you know, speculation, like, did they do their job properly? What happened? Um, but ultimately she had had a stroke. And so when she was in the stra- in the transcript, it actually says, she said in her own words, um, you probably think I'm drunk, but I'm not because she was obviously slurring. She couldn't talk properly and she'd lost the feeling down her whole right side of her body. Um, she managed to call. She didn't phone me at this point. Um, I wish she had, but she didn't. And I honestly do think it's because she just didn't want to worry me. Um, But she called the neighbours next door um, and they came round and my mum managed to drag herself across the floor and managed to open the door. And then they took us straight to hospital. Um, They went to St George's and two things. And... The thought of how like scared she must have been, and it's just awful. And I just wish, I so wish that she had called me. Um, yeah, I don't think about that night very much, to be honest, because it's, yeah, it's 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 so it's so difficult. Even after 20 years, it's so difficult to go there. But then what happened? She got to the hospital and she had a huge brain hemorrhage, and they found out she had um uh, leukemia acute myeloid leukemia and it was quite it was progressive um and you know even if they caught it early I don't think they would have been able to do anything but she she was such a fighter that she didn't she didn't complain about being tired she didn't tell us about if she had any symptoms at all I mean I wish she had gone to the doctor um but but she didn't and and my dad then Obviously was in Kent and he came up to be with her, but he also didn't phone me that night. And he was with her in the hospital, and she was on a um, she was on on a machine, obviously life support machine. And he made the decision by himself, which has been quite a difficult one for me to deal with. Um, to turn it off before I was there or before I was told. So one of my sisters is in Dubai at this time. One of them's in the Caribbean. I was in London, 15, 20 minutes away from the hospital and he didn't call me and he turned it off at six o'clock in the morning, I think it was, or 6.45 the next day. And, oh no, sorry, on the 14th. And yeah, that was, that's been really a difficult one for me to deal with, to be honest. I he had to do what he had to do and I don't think he was obviously thinking straight. But if I just wish that I'd had a chance, you know, to to see her and say goodbye. So I was um i just turned twenty-three at this point in October. And obviously that was a huge shock for me. I was very young and I was quite happy go lucky until that time and I hadn't really had to deal with anything um of severity up until then. Um and I was going out with a lovely, lovely man at the time. He was really supportive and he was, he was fantastic actually. We decided to go to Thailand that Christmas, so three months after my mum died, because I didn't want to be at home really. It was too difficult to be at home. Um, I think my sisters were doing things with their in-laws and my dad was going to go, want to go there. And I just found it very difficult to go home with my mum not there. There was, there was never any food in, in, you know, in the, in the house. Um, the house was always in a bit of a mess. Um, it was just so clear. There was a massive void in that house, you know, and it was very hard for me to go, to go back there. So we made the decision to go to Thailand and we went to a little island called P, which is a stunning island. It's very, very small and we were there at Christmas and we in, in thailand they celebrate christmas eve as like a bigger day than christmas day itself and we had quite a big night on christmas eve um and it was his, his birthday on the 23rd of december actually as well so we had a big night the 23rd big night the 24th and the 25th christmas day we didn't do anything we were we took it easy we went to bed early. We just had a really nice day, you know, in the sunshine, but thank goodness we didn't drink or we didn't go out that night because the next morning we woke up, um, to a- an earthquake. I wasn't fully aware it was an earthquake because it was just felt like a minor tremor, but we definitely felt something and we went to have breakfast in the, in the hotel and we were checking out that morning actually because we were going to go to another island and as we were walking back to our little we were in a kind of nice little hut um it was really pretty like it's sort of within a sort of jungle on the beach really and we were walking back and we suddenly heard these screams of water water run run and just people running in different directions and i had no idea what was going on at all we just decided to run in one direction and there was a little house, um, I, I guess it's all a tourist accommodation there but we we ran and there was a, a sort of porch area, a balcony um, that we went onto and there were a couple of other people up there and that's when I saw the first wave coming towards us. and the noise is something that I'll just never I'll never forget. Um the first tsunami wave coming and it was like a the only way that I can describe it was like a like a like a sort of dishwasher noise, but amplified. It was so loud, like a sort of jet engine. Um and just this wall of water which looks from where we were like fifty foot high and it just was taking everything with it um there was people there was people standing there that were just getting swallowed up by the water it was crashing through palm trees and it was just hurtling towards us and I just I just didn't know what I don't I just didn't even know what was going on I just honestly I thought this was it I thought there's no way that anyone can survive this and it came crashing into the building that we were in and there was people in the water around us and my boyfriend was holding on to me. And I just remember just this, this just the screams, just the screams. It was so, it was so horrendous, Dave. Like I, I think I've managed somehow in my mind to, to block it out because my I, I think it's, you feel like you're in a horror film. You know, there's, it's like you're watching some massive CGI production. Um, It was, yeah, truly, truly terrifying, truly terrifying. And there was this little three-year-old boy, maybe younger, and he was by himself. And I picked him up and he'd obviously, he'd soiled his pants and he was crying. And I was just holding him and I saw his later on actually we found his mum thank god but it was yeah there were just there were injured people everywhere and luckily we were in a situation where we could help people Um, but the next 24 hours was terrifying because it was sort of before we had a phone but obviously there was no reception there was no obviously no internet no electricity all the water pipes had been completely destroyed so none of the taps and even the higher hotels that we managed to get into there was a big hotel block that was being used as a sort of hospital where all the injured people were going but for 24 hours no one no one came um and because there was no connection with the outside world we didn't know if this was happening Had is this like a you know armageddon is this has this happened around the whole world or is this just where we are? And I, I remember thinking, which is crazy, like, oh, maybe this happens the whole time in Thailand. I just didn't know, you know. That's why was my thinking. I just thought, oh, maybe this just happens, and I just, I wasn't aware of it. Um, and then there was a few, a few incredible people who really took control of the situation. And there were some doctors there, and they were making choices when the helicopter did finally come um, to fly people to Phuket and Bangkok people were being flown to hospitals all over Thailand we had to make decisions like whose injuries who who should get on these helicopters first because they lying down you can only put four people in and we we're like well this person isn't gonna make it so we couldn't put them in the in the helicopter and then other people who had severe injuries but could tolerate you know being in the helicopter we were putting them in but then there were other people with serious injuries like someone with a missing arm um and it was it was it was a situation like it was a war zone you know and I had never been exposed obviously to anything like that at all and it was terrifying and you don't know how you're gonna react and I hope we we definitely you know helped as many people as we could but it was sorry i I don't really talk about it very much, so um so yeah, I think you know we we made some we had to make some tough decisions, and that night we were on top of this four or five story building, and someone had a remote like a intercom, and they were talking to one of the ships there was a navy ship outside um kind of a a few a few miles off the coast and they were sending um they wanted to send some boats in basically the next day but they kept saying that there's another wave coming so the whole night I was in this state well everyone was this state of anxiety fight or flight like this could happen again another wave's going to come it didn't come but we were on this in this four foot concrete hotel but foundations of sand you're on this tiny island and we didn't know if it was going to withhold or stand up or and for that whole 12 hours that you know no one slept obviously it was just it was terrifying that whole experience we did get off the island the next day and we went um to another little hotel but we would sort of lost everything we lost obviously all our stuff and everything um, and then we were I was able to call my dad to say that we were okay and my sisters and actually a friend of mine had seen us on Sky News he'd seen my boyfriend on Sky News and actually managed to call my dad and said that he'd seen us and that we were helping with the rescue so thank goodness my dad because you know he had just lost his wife three months ago and before this and the you know he must have been terrified as well he's never really talked me about it but he must have been terrified same as my sisters um so so that happened um and i you know the trauma combined with having just lost my mum and then the tsunami was so immense that no one none of my friends knew how to deal with it of course why would they and we just got stuck back into this london lifestyle where we were going out on a thursday friday night um, you know, partying, and going to clubs um, and then, you know, you could go to work on two, three hours sleep and that was just what, you know, I was 22, 23 and that's just sort of what we did for the next few years.
0: Did you just um, associate yourself from it, do you think, when you come back? Because that whole story you told me, I'm, I i can't even describe how I feel. So I'm sure the listeners are feeling the same, you know, losing your mum suddenly like that, and then getting away on this dream island and being terrified, especially when they said there's another one coming and you're just waiting for it to to swallow you up. But not just that, getting off the island, I imagine, was just as terrifying. And then you come back and it sounds like you carried on with life and it was the most horrific few months anyone could go through really
1: do you know what that's exactly exactly it like it was it was such a nightmare that I don't think I could even go there
0: yeah.
1: I, I found it difficult to talk about it my boyfriend basically refused to talk about it just the way that he dealt with it so I I all almost didn't want to become like a victim because there were so many people who died you know I think it was two hundred and fifty thousand people died in the boxing Day army and I was one of the lucky ones um which now i can see that i am lucky but at the time i felt i felt really unlucky to even be there after Mm. everything had happened um do you know actually when you said that about getting off the island there was one family that just really sticks in my mind we were on the boat leaving and it was just like um you know something you'd see on the news like people injured um you know no one's got any belongings you know ripped dirty clothing. And, um, there was a lady there and we'd seen her, you know, when you're on holiday and you kind of recognize the same faces and same families and, and I saw her and I think she was, um, she was Scandinavian anyway, like really beautiful blonde hair, tall. And she was there and she had two boys with her. And I know that she had three, she was staying at the same hotel as us and she had three boys and a husband. And one of the boys wasn't on the boat and the husband wasn't on the boat and they were all sobbing. And I don't know. I don't know what happened, but either way, they she she left with two of those sons and left her husband and the son on the island. Whether or not one of them had died or both of them had died or the husband was there trying to look for him, I don't know. But that really sums it up that's basically what it was people were leaving to look after their living children but possibly leaving a spouse or you know there's so many horrendous stories like you had to make that decision what you wanted to do and we were lucky that we were leaving together um but honestly those next few months in London were I was in complete denial complete denial really I hadn't I wasn't offered any trauma counseling which I definitely should have had or grief counseling or both um my friends were great but they didn't know how to handle it of course we were 23 24 um so yeah it was it, yeah it was mad and actually I've just remembered something else that happened a couple of months after that so it would have been February time I actually had my drink spiked in a bar so we were in a pub well in a pub in Fulham and I was at I was at the bar and I was buying a round of drinks and I had a vodka cranberry and I was actually with a group of my like, um, just a group of guys. And there might have been a couple of girls, but I bought some beers for them and I bought a vodka cranberry and I took a couple of the drinks back. And basically, there was this guy at the bar He was chatting me up. I asked for my number and I said no. And I think I was probably quite rude to him, to be honest, because at the time I was, I don't know, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to have this conversation with him, so I was quite rude. I was like, "My boyfriend's over there, like, leave me alone." Anyway, I took some of the drinks back. It was quite obvious which one was my drink because I left it on the bar with another pint. Went back to get those, and this was my first drink, and I drank it. And I remember feeling really suddenly, really sick and really dizzy. And I managed somehow to get down into the into the bathroom of the pub. It was downstairs and I locked myself in there and basically I passed out. I don't know what it was, but I passed out. Some of my friends managed to come down and get me out, took me onto the street. And I know it was February time because it was freezing cold and I was wearing like a little vest top, but I was sweating and I was lying on the, lying on the pavement outside this pub. And you know, that alone is quite significant event and I just I didn't even talk about it I almost laughed it off I think I just kind of pretended like it hadn't really happened um and didn't really discuss it And it's certainly not something that I talk about now um but we called the hosp we called the we told we basically I called the hospital the next day and I called the police and I said this sort of happened and I spoke to the people at the bar and I had to get a test that's right they had to do a, like a urine test at the hospital, so they said that yeah i had they found rihimol or something. I can't remember exactly what it was um and the pub said, "Yeah, we've had a few instances recently, and I just remember thinking like how shocking that whole situation was um but yeah, nothing was done about it, and I definitely hadn't I didn't talk about it anymore um and, if, and a few months later. I mean, it's sort of laughable, Dave, when these things happen because now talking about it, like when at the time it just felt like things couldn't get any worse and I felt like a real victim. Um, even though I wasn't drinking to block this out, I don't think I was just doing what everyone else was doing, but I, I don't know if it was an abuse that happened or what the right terminology is but on the tube i was um someone ejaculated on me on the tube <clears throat> um <clears throat> so this is the following year so this is 2004 so it would be some sometime that year so i was still 23 and i you know you're crammed into into a tube train and i didn't really know what was going on this guy was just basically rubbing himself against me And I couldn't really see because I think he was behind me and it all happened very quickly. And then, I mean, it was just, it was awful. It was awful thinking about it now. I'm almost more disturbed than I was because I think I was living in a sort of dream world because I couldn't associate with any of these bad things that were happening to me. But now I was like, I feel, I feel so awful for that. Twenty-three-year-old who was going through all of that stuff. Like my nieces are now that age, and I just think how like how sad, like how awful that mm-hmm. she wasn't able to. I, that's how I look at myself because I look at myself as if it's a different person because that's how I feel now. Especially you know after my sobriety, but I look at this person. I'm like, this is just heartbreaking. All of these things are happening. Um so yeah sorry it's a lot it's a lot of information but um so those are some things that happened in my twenties um but i I felt this sort of i mean, i also you know i was in this relationship with um a great with a great guy, and I managed to push him away because I think i was self sabotaging and I think that's how certain these traumas sort of ended up. Um, affecting me I was self-sabotaging I was very I was really terrified of abandonment I had some serious abandonment issues Um I treated him quite badly Um but I was also terrified of him leaving because you know I felt that my mum was had left me and then all of these bad things were happening Um so I was also desperate for a kind of a relationship like a long term relationship and that's all I wanted I just wanted to, I thought that if I get married I want the security that everything will get better mm. um and that sort of I was more looking for that rather than like a healthy you know partnership um so yeah it was it was a, it was a lot there was a lot going on
0: yeah you were looking for a solution and you, you were blocking everything out which is understandable the disassociation but it's you know it's probably where the drinking came in just to keep you disassociated right
1: Mm, I think so I think so um even at this stage my my drinking sort of stayed normal-ish social drinking I definitely wasn't drinking daily um I'd probably be binge drinking you know when we go out and things like that um I ended up I met my now husband um when I was 26 um, and I worked on a program called Shipwreck. Um, I don't know if you remember it with T4. Yeah. Uh. And we were, out, we were out in the Cook Islands actually um, for a couple of months and I met him there, but he was a few years younger than me. And I ended up breaking up with him. I dumped him when we got back um, because I thought he was a bit immature. He was 23 or 24 at the time. <laughs> and um, so as soon as that relationship ended, I then, Looked for somebody I wanted to marry basically, and it happened really, really quickly. So I, I married my ex-husband, who's also the father of my eldest son. Um, we got engaged after four months, which says a lot. Um, uh, we were so badly suited. Um, we had nothing in common, but I just wanted the security and I thought that I was in love with him. And I'm not going to talk too much about that relationship because obviously it's the father of my eldest son.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that's his story to tell, but basically it ended really, really badly. Um, and I left when my son was four months old. Um, and then got back together with my now husband, uh, quite soon after that. Um, and I had, I should probably talk actually a little bit about what happened with my eldest son because I had something called preeclampsia um which is really dangerous for pregnant women um he was 6 weeks premature and he was 4 pounds when he was born but I had a pretty bad experience in the hospital as well around that when he was born um and basically what I was I was mistreated in the hospital so I I was in a lot of pain. I went to the hospital. Um, They told me I had a urine infection, but I knew that there was something really seriously wrong. Like I was in agony. I was being sick. And this was six months before, six weeks before he was obviously due. Um, I'd come up in this horrendous rash. I'd blown up. My face was all swollen. um, And the midwife basically dismissed me and told me to go home. And I basically refused to go. So I sat in the waiting room. and. Thank goodness I did because I started hemorrhaging and I collapsed. And within 11 minutes, I was, they call it an immediate C-section, which is sort of more extreme than a emergency C-section. It means this is a life or death situation. My mother and baby aren't going to make it unless this baby comes out now. So I had this immediate C-section within 11 minutes. And i I was so... traumatized by it that I began getting this really over really over over protective with my son I didn't want anyone else to hold him Um, I didn't want anyone else to look after him Um, because he was so little he had this thing called reflux Um, so he couldn't hold his milk down properly and he'd been in intensive care for two weeks and that whole situation as well I think that's when it Started to change for me, and I was like, I can't, I can't deal with these. This, this is too much. Yeah, this is all too much for me. And when we did get home, I think that's when I did start drinking more. Mm. Um, uh, even then, I wasn't daily drinking, so I was in my early thirties, but I definitely was using it more as to medicate. I think at home now,
0: and because you mentioned before, it's more the social drinking, but now it was at home.
1: Yeah, it definitely shifted, you know, yeah. not only because I was at home by myself with him because my husband then had left. Um, but I yeah, it was it was that's what I was doing. I was probably drinking. I and I and I think it was somewhere in the next five or six years when it started to become a a problem for me. Mm. Um I the the big turning point for me when I knew there was a problem um was in 2020 and that was after my third baby was born and a very similar situation happened with him than it did with my first um except he was actually more unwell when he was born and he had to have this uh, something called a pneumothorax and they came to wake me up at two in the morning and they turned the light the doctors turned the lights on they came into the in i was in a private room because they put me in there and They turned the lights on and they said, you need to sign this bit of paper. Your baby's not okay. Like it's touch and go, basically, whether or not he's going to live throughout the night. You need to sign this. And I didn't know what was going on and I just signed it. And I'm obviously there by myself. My husband's at home with my other two children. And at that point, I was like, I can't, I can't cope with this anymore. And I remember calling one of my best friends, just sobbing. I'm just like, this is too much. Like I can't, I can't deal with it all too much. Um, I refused to go down to NICU, which is where my baby was in intensive care. My husband went down, I just like I couldn't. Every time I went down there I'd faint. It was just all overwhelming. Um and I got him home when he was three or four weeks old. And again I had this sort of tiny baby and I just couldn't cope, Dave. It was just all too much. So, you know, the grief that I hadn't coped with, the traumas, um, all of this stuff, like the fact that I could have lost one of my babies, you know, I just, I wasn't dealing with it well. And I was drinking too much. Mm. And I was drinking probably most days, probably five nights a week at this stage. And I was very conscious that I would try and have days off. I'd have, try not to drink on a Monday. Um And this was when I was in that sort of moderation hell for five years really, pretty much, um, trying to moderate, not being able to moderate, failing and then beating myself up, and um, hating myself, self-loathing, fear, shame, all of those things that I, you know, and I felt broken. About six months before I stopped drinking, I, I knew there was an issue. No one else around me knew there was an issue. My husband thought I was drinking a bit too much. Um, but I think more for him, he could tell that I was just really desperately unhappy. Um, I'd have these awful depressive cycles. Um, my anxiety was off the chart. Actually, that's something that I, we haven't talked about, but after the tsunami, I used to get these awful nightmares and we didn't really talk about um, anxiety like we do now because this was the early 2000s, but that's when my anxiety started. And I was, I think honestly, for 20 years, I was living in this sort of fight or flight mode. And I was just like this ball of tension and anxiety and stress, um, which then compounded into these sort of depressive episodes that I got. Um, I was put on antidepressants. I put on um, an anxiety medication. Um, not once was I told to look at my drinking or ask how much I was drinking or anything like that. Um, so I was taking antidepressants, which obviously weren't working. Um, I got into a really dark place um 6 months or so before i stopped drinking and i was having suicidal thoughts um i had a plan as well um which i now know because of the courses that i'm doing that that's really dangerous i had a plan we live in a, in a village a really beautiful village in hampshire and we've got lots of woods around us um and i i was having proper thoughts about what to do um whether or not I would have actually ever done it, I don't know i hope I really hope that I wouldn't have um because of my children. I just don't think I could have ever ever done that, but it was terrifying me and i I felt broken and I felt like I needed help and I asked for help I asked my g p for help I asked my i was then seeing a therapist I asked them for help, and I was basically shut down. My therapist just t- said to me that oh well everybody you know has a glass of wine at night everyone everyone you know does that to unwind you know there's no issue there and I was screaming this isn't normal I don't feel healthy you know I was doing that classic thing when I was waking up at you know 8 in the morning with a pounding headache and swearing to myself that I'm not going to drink I'm not going to drink today going downstairs there might have been half a bottle of of wine left in the fridge and I'd pour it it away and then at five o'clock in the afternoon or even from three o'clock I was thinking oh god I'm definitely gonna I'd, I'd done a complete 180 I'm definitely gonna drink tonight I really need to drink tonight I couldn't cope with the emotions that I was feeling I felt overwhelmed um and then I would go to the shop on the way back from the school run and buy a bottle of wine and the same same thing would happen you know just the same cycle and i was stuck in this for months and months waking up feeling sick um just hating myself hating myself and being stuck in this horrible depression and feeling so lonely full of anxiety um and i remember asking my husband i just saying please like i need i need help like i need I need to do something. Like, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. And he said, like, he was so supportive. I'm so lucky to have him, honestly. He's just amazing. He's an amazing man. He's an amazing dad. Um, but he didn't realize the extent of how unhappy I was. I don't think. Um, he didn't, he didn't, he'd come home from work sometimes with a bottle of wine when I said I didn't want to drink this week. But then I, it was there and i drink it and it wasn't him trying to make me drink or anything, but he thought he was doing me a favor because he knows that I, you know, liked a glass of white wine. Um, I just got stuck in this awful, awful situation. I couldn't find a way out at all.
0: Wow. And I'm interested as well with your husband. Is he a drinker? Because he doesn't say. So
1: he, he doesn't drink much at all he'd have he'd have had the odd glass of wine with me i used to actually get quite annoyed with with yeah, him
0: to share when it. he
1: yeah like he'd he'd sometimes i'd have a glass of wine he'd be like oh well it's you know sunday night i'll have a glass of red wine mm. and i was like
0: oh well, that's what, you bit... do-
1: what are you doing
0: but, I don't but then i was like i that. can't have
1: my full i can't have my full yeah, bottle now
0: yeah yeah i know that um, one but the reason I say it is because it sounds so innocent, him getting a bottle of wine, and it, it kind of proves that he didn't really get it, right? So, and that makes it even harder, doesn't it? Because then it becomes more secretive because you you keep it all to yourself and you're in this real insular relationship with alcohol, aren't you? And it can make it so much harder, I think, yeah. to do yeah, something I, about it.
1: I thought there was something really wrong with me. Um, I, I didn't think anyone else drank like me. You know, there's this whole, I'm not going to go into it because it's too much of a big subject, but all the mummy wine culture, you know, I deserve a glass of wine. I've got three young children. You know, I've got a full time job. Things are stressful. Um, I, I, you know, it's a treat for myself, but it's, it's not, it wasn't a treat for me. I hated it and I hated doing it and I wasn't in denial because I knew, I knew what I was doing. I just wanted it to stop and I, you know, I do dry January, and I would stop um, for kind of weeks on end. But it was hell. It was yeah. hell because I was doing it all wrong. You yeah. know, I was just waiting and I was counting down to that next drink. You know, I was counting down to that Friday night when it I. You were just a drink.
0: counting the days. There was no growth there. It was oh, almost no like sublimely saying to yourself, "Oh, well, obviously, I haven't got a problem with it because I can go for a few." weeks and i always say to people that come to me and they say you know none of my friends are like me and i say because they don't talk to you about their drinking and there's probably a lot of them that are especially mm. in the mummy wine culture because i think me blokes they brag about it they go you know they get in the van in the morning and they're like oh my god i've got such hangover mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't go in the playground and say to three mums oh my god i did three bottles of wine last night what am i like do you know what i mean so you keep it to yourself and then it becomes horrific, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it does. And it's just, it was all I was thinking about as well. Like it's so toxic for my mind and obviously contributing hugely to my anxiety and my mental health issues. I, it was compounding, you know, all of that stuff, all of the negative self-talk, the self-loathing um, and everything makes you feel worse. Mm. And it's the one one thing is the alcohol and that was what was that was what was causing everything and also stopping me from actually healing and processing all of this grief and dealing with this trauma yeah
0: um
1: but not once did anyone tell me that like i just didn't know i didn't know that that's what it was i thought if i did stop drinking my life would be over basically i just thought it'd be boring and I'd have no friends, and my life would be crap, basically. The opposite. It's always the opposite. Yeah. I thought I'd still have the depression and the anxiety, but I just wouldn't be drinking.
0: And you wouldn't have Um, any friends, right? And it's interesting what you say about the doctors, right? Because that same happened to me. I wasn't asked about my drinking. And then I went back a few months later and saying, I'm I'm still as depressed. And he he didn't – I was literally in and out within – 90 seconds he said right let's try 100 milligrams and that's when i went psychotic Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. literally went mad with the boozing and whatnot um and i hear it all the time about they just say we'll try aa or try reducing and it really angers me because they say if you've got a problem with alcohol go and see your doctor what why Mm-hmm. Well, and now you can't even get a doctor's appointment as well and on the news yesterday i saw that um there's a new report out saying that antidepressants um the prescriptions for them have doubled in the last couple of years right because that to them's a solution i'm depressed okay let's put you on antidepressants then not okay let's have a look at your lifestyle what how can we make changes in your lifestyle you know it's immediately put you on antidepressants and then you're in the loop of that with the alcohol and some people take sleeping tablets you know and you were on anti-anxiety tablets i was on reflux tablets i was on tablets to bring my cholesterol down blood pressure tablets so i was rattling as i was walking up the road and felt absolutely diabolical 24 hours a day and not once was it mentioned about drinking
1: it you know, is it is mad it's mad isn't it i had this conversation with my gp and i was honest you know and i was saying i'm drinking probably five or six bottles of wine a week um which might not sound like a huge amount but i also had a very low tolerance like i would get really bad hangovers so in my mind i knew i couldn't really go over that bottle mm. um, and if i did it would be there would be trouble the next day um but my gp just to ask me the one question asked me if i was taking multivitamins That's, that was all, that's all he said. Yeah. And I, I remember, and actually they did give me the number for, um, a, like a local, um, like an alcohol support group, but that was awful as well because I called them and she, the first thing she said to me was don't go to school. Don't go to the school pickup smelling of alcohol because then they'll call social services. That's what the response I got when I called, called this number, which is shocking and terrifying. Like, First off, I'm a, an amazing mum. Like, I know that I've never put my children in danger. I wasn't day drinking. I wasn't drinking in the morning. But do not say that to me because when already you're terrified about how you're coming across and you're feeling ashamed, like I was yeah. feeling ashamed that I had to call this number anyway.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then someone telling me that I was terrified. Like, that was, that was my wor- worst
0: that's my worst nightmare awful. is someone
1: taking my children away from me. Um, so that's what happened and so obviously this, you know, I, I won't mention what it's called, but you know, that local support group was not was not, mm.
0: good. <laughs> it was not good. That's awful. So let's go to the, the part in your life then that enough was enough. Mm. And I believe that was last year. Uh was it April?
1: Yeah, it was. It was April the thirtieth, um, twenty twenty two. Um, so I've just done 19 months sober and thank you so much. Um, so yeah, that last night drinking, um, it wasn't anything spectacular. It wasn't, um, I didn't get arrested. I didn't crash a car. I didn't do anything. Um, it was just a kind of quite a standard weekend situation. Um, but I just woke up, um, feeling awful. I was being sick. I had. To do something that day in the village. Um, there was like a run, like a sort of charity run thing and I was marshalling. So I had to go up this hill and, um, I just felt awful. My head was pounding. We'd had some people over for dinner the night before and I probably only had maybe a, a bottle and a half wine, maybe two bottles of white wine. Um, and yeah, I just felt shocking and I woke up and I just was like, I can't do this anymore. Can't do this anymore i don't want to do this anymore and this was a sunday and no sorry this was a saturday um and then on the monday night i went to my first aa meeting and i know that there's you know lots of different opinions about aa and some people have told me that i'm not an alcoholic um but for me that got me sober that helped me the support they gave me um was absolutely fantastic and I think it doesn't, you don't have to be a really high, you know, serious alcoholic. You can be a grey area drinker, moderate drinker, because basically it's all of pretty much the same thing. The bar is so high, you know, there's such a big spectrum, mm. um, of drinking categories almost before you end up on a park bench, you know, there's, so much in the middle and anywhere in that middle ground can benefit from so many different types of you know stopping drinking um but the other thing is Dave I didn't know that there was a sober community on Instagram I didn't know about any of these sober amazing sober coaches I didn't know about these groups I didn't know any of that stuff at all um which is it's kind of a bit crazy to me because I did listen to a few podcasts I listened to yours I listened to one of the US I listened to Terry's um a few other a few others um but I just didn't know there was a sort of Instagram community which is just so helpful as well now and um yeah so whether or not I would you know do the same again I'm not sure but um it helped me and all I'm saying is that I haven't had a drink since that first meeting and that's all the proof that I need really
0: You know, I always describe it as the, I've said it before, so I'm probably boring the listeners now, but it's my visualisation is that we've all got our right to, or our own way of um, how we do it, right? And it's like you and me going shopping and you take me into a shop and I go, mm, it's not really for me, but let me take you into my shop. And you go, mm, don't know, maybe. I might have a little look around, but I'm going to go back to my shop. So you can intermix the two Mm -hmm. or have one or the other. There's so many different options now. And great. That's just brilliant, isn't it? Because I'm here with you today. You've just shared an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that because that must have been difficult because before this interview, we had a little chat and said, you know, I haven't really spoken about it. And you spoke so eloquently about it. So thank you. But you're here 19 months sober. We've met before. We had a lovely walk and a lovely lunch with a few of us in the community. You're happy. Um, your husband's happy. Happy kids. Great future ahead because you've stopped this terrible drug. So in a way, it doesn't really matter how you've done it, does it?
1: No, it doesn't matter at all. You know, I think we all get the sort of the same end result and everything that I've learned about myself, you know, I've been able to process this grief. I've been able to deal with this trauma and leave it where it is. You know, I don't regret anything that's happened now and I don't feel like that victim anymore. Mm. I've been able to move forward and not worry so much about the future not stressed and live in the past i'm living for the present i'm enjoying my kids so much more they love the fact that i don't drink you know i'm lucky that two of them are really still very young so um they don't really remember um but they get very excited about kind of like instagram followers and like podcasts and that sort of stuff which is really nice And i involve them in that Mm. um but yeah everything's good and i'm in a really good Post place and i hardly have any i still get the odd bit of anxiety and social anxiety but nothing near you know as how i was feeling before um and my i had one depressive cycle around the eight month um, mark but otherwise i haven't had any and it's that's mind-blowing to me when i was getting it pretty much monthly um
0: that's one of yeah, the first just, thing that goes the anxiety isn't it you know, of course yeah. you've got everything that goes on in life, but I think the nervous system calms down when you take away the alcohol and and it's just so reassuring to tell people that you can get changes quite quickly, can't you? You know, within a couple of weeks you can start to really feel the benefits of not drinking. And And I was going to lead on before we go, for people listening today, what bit of advice would you give them if they are currently on that hamster wheel of Doomsville, what I call where we waking up in the morning, like you, you're pouring the wine down the sink and by three o'clock, you're thinking about nipping up the co-op because there's that change in the day, isn't there? What would you say to, to the listeners now?
1: Yeah. Do you know what? This is kind of probably the main thing that I get asked about on my Instagram, like people messaging me. Um, I, the main, main thing that I'd say if you're sober curious and you're really struggling in that hamster wheel, as you say, um, listen to the podcast, read those books, reach out to the community, whether or not that's AA, a sober group or a coach, um, whatever you need to do, but you've got to help yourself. I think that's so important. Mm. No one's going to come and save you, unfortunately. you know, I always thought that someone would come and sweep in and, and save me and rescue me. That's what I wanted my husband to do, but it, it it can't be that way. You have to do something to help yourself and um I think that's a really good starting point, but you know you need people to talk to, and um there are so many fantastic options now um so so yeah, get informed and get get help and ask for
0: help. I couldn't have said it any better. Honestly, that's the best advice. So I, I'm truly grateful for you joining me today. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Well, thanks so
1: much for having me, David. It's been
0: lovely. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book One For The Road on Amazon and you can also follow me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.